Well, welcome everyone. I, uh, good to see you. Chapter 39 of Genesis. It tells us in verse 6, as you know, Joseph, uh, and again, I think all of you have been with this study, you know how he got to Egypt, and you know why he's there, and he is now elevated into a position with Potiphar. Potiphar is the name of the guard, uh, military man in Pharaoh's uh, court, and uh, he has, that is, Joseph has earned such confidence that he is now, in effect, head of the entire estate, household, etc., of this very powerful man in ancient Egypt. <clears throat> and then it tells us, after that is all explained, that Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, verse, end of verse 6. That is very important because of what happens next. <clears throat> so if, as the text has been explaining to us in the last couple of chapters, that the Lord is with Joseph, remember that? It keeps repeating that. The question now is, is Joseph with the Lord? Is Joseph going to, in the situations that he finds himself in these next several chapters, will he remain faithful to God? Because there's, I think we should clearly understand what's going to happen next, is Joseph's position is in jeopardy as his faith is tested by Potiphar's wife. And I think the relevance of what happens in this next paragraph is um, something that all of us, to one degree or another, have experienced maybe not such a direct seduction by a woman, but the possibility of always, before us as men, of being unfaithful to the Lord. And so um, Joseph is tested here in a, in a real sense. And so we, with that introduction of Joseph in terms of his physical characteristics, that's a, I'm reading from the ESV, that's a very good translation of, of how he is presented. He's young. He is apparently very good-looking. As uh, sometimes said today, he would be a hunk, you know, just a real uh, unimportant uh, individual, as well as a good-looking individual. After a time, verse 7, his master's wife, now the his, would be, uh, you know, of course, it's Potiphar, a wife, cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. That's a euphemism for have sex with me, go to bed with me, sleep with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept anything from me except yourself, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? That's the key. He does review his position. He does review his authority. He does review the relationship of trust that Potiphar has with him. But the primary motivation is God's. He does not want to sin against God. And it's just, it's, 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 a, it's a remarkable affirmation of faith. It's, a, I think, a applicationally a very, very important reminder for you and for me as men 
that our primary loyalty is to God. We Yes, our loyalty is to our wife, again, if you're married and so on, but it, that covenant arrangement you have when you said, I do, to your wife and the promise you made to her, that's extremely important. But it is also important to remember that your primary fundamental loyalty is to God. And so they, uh, Joseph, in the midst of this, and, and he's saying this to this woman, as an, an, an immense statement of faith and trust in God as well as his commitment to God. And then in verse 10, you get in the, the, the verb tense here in the Hebrew is really, really something. And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, this is relentless, ongoing temptation. Um, it, it isn't once, it isn't twice. The phrase day after day indicates this, you know, you can't put a time frame. I don't know if it's weeks. I don't know if it's months. But it's more than just once or twice. This is continuous. This is relentless. She is lusting after him. And her continual relentless pursuit of him meets this continual response. He would not listen to her, lie beside her, or be with her. You see those three key points? Listen. Lie beside her. Just just come come lie beside me. I'm I'm I'll make this up. I'm cold. Just help me to get warm. That's all I'm asking you to do. I mean it's it's the luring language that that uh, that is being placed in front of him and then to be with her. The assumption I think we should make from that, he did everything he possibly could to stay away from her. She's in the same room, she's in a room, and he sees she's in the room, he goes to another room, or you know, goes to another part in the in the in the, the compound of this this powerful man. Hey, Jim, I don't think that we're we can't assume that he was not tempted. You know, oh no, no I one is, no. I mean, the Lord was even tempted, as I understand it. Absolutely. So he withstood that temptation and stood his ground and obeyed the Lord. That's exactly right. Now, I'm glad you you put it that way, uh, Woody. That he is being tempted is clear here. He's being enticed to do something which is evil, which is what temptation is. But the reason I'm stressing the end of verse 10 is... Can I put it this way? Joseph had a strategy for holiness in his life. Does that phrase make sense to you? He had a strategy for holiness. Um, I don't don't have a board here, but I've done this before. When we were in the book of James, we did that because it's in the, the first chapter of James. Sin begins as a thought, becomes a desire, and leads to an action. So Joseph knew something. He knew something about how this worked in his own life. So he is doing, as part of his strategy, he is doing everything he can to prevent that becoming a thought, becoming a desire. Are you, are you tracking with me? I, I'm trying to, I mean, that, that to me, this, this is what is, is remarkable about this man as a model of faith and a model of deep-seated commitment to God. He had a, and I don't think it's incorrect to say this, he had a well-thought-through strategy 
of how I'm going to avoid this woman. Because the text in verse 10 is clear. She is relentless. She is daily presenting herself to him and just saying, just lie with me. A little, just come and just lie down with me. I don't want you to do anything with me. Just lie down with me. No, I'm not even going to. And I'm even avoiding you to the extent that if you're in the same room, I'm not going to go into that room with you. So you see this this, um, tenacity of Joseph. You see this fortitude of Joseph. And he he has a strategy of how he's going to deal with this. And for me, I mean, I've preached on this. For me, I think that is an important application for all of us, but especially for us as men. You know where your vulnerable points are. You know that as you grow and mature, you know where those points are. And you must develop a strategy. And that means you you think it through and you just say, I'm going to stay away from this and stay away from it because I know what will happen if I yield to this. And whatever that this is, is not necessarily the sin, but it's what can lead to the sin. And so, I mean, in our, we, we, you and I live, and, and much more than someone like Joseph in the ancient world, you and I live in such a visual culture that, I mean, it is just, it is constantly before us as men. And I mean, the, the same applies for women too, but I'm not talking to women, I'm talking to men. So... You have, to, you have to develop that kind of, you get to know yourself, you get to know what your limits are, and you just say, these are things, it's not because it makes you more holy, you're some super spiritual giant, it's just you've learned. You've learned what you need to do to what Joseph said, I will not sin against God. And so it's, and I, I've worked with a lot of young guys because, you know, until I retired, I was with, working with college guys all my life, and still do to some extent. And that's the, that's one of the biggest issues they face. As they're beginning to mature and grow with the Lord, how do I face this? How do I deal with this? And that's why I came up with that phrase, a strategy for holiness. It, it also comes down to even the movies we might watch or the mm-hmm. TV shows we mm-hmm. might watch. And my mm-hmm. pastor puts it like he said he had to turn his head. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a that's a deliberate act in the strategy. It's just I know I know what happens when I dwell on something, and that thought becomes a desire. And even the desire itself is not sin; it's the action that's sin. But as men, we know when it's something is at a desire stage, and the biblical word for that is lust. Once it's at that stage, that's hard. It's hard, it's hard to stop without. Uh, doing something that's displeasing to the Lord. So to me, that's an important takeaway here in terms of the character of Joseph. Um, he is a real model of this because uh, you have so many models. We just read one last week about Judah. Remember him? That's the contrast between chapter 38 and chapter 39. Judah is constantly giving in. He sees a woman along the road when he's up with his sheep, and he, he thinks she's a prostitute. And to, How much is it going to cost for me to have sex with you? I'm paraphrasing. Remember that? Not Joseph. Not Joseph at all. You, the contrast is very distinct. All right. Well, Jim, you're saying that this, <clears throat> this uh, application of thought, desire, and action uh, by a Christian can take place in, in different avenues as well as oh, sure. just in sexual. And, oh, absolutely. Life. Uh, yeah. And, and perhaps if we have that response, 
then it makes it easier, even though it's not easy, easy we can't do it without the power of the Spirit within us, uh, it makes it easier for us to make, make the right decision in different venues at different times because we have that model. Is that kind of what you're saying? Well, yes, and I think uh, this is another thing I say to the guys. Another another way of looking at that is is, is you learn yourself, you learn your limits, you learn the strategy, then that becomes a habit of righteousness in your life. I hope you understand what I mean by that phrase, a habit of righteousness. You, it's just a habit you're developing because 1 Timothy 4, 7 says we are to train ourselves for godliness. I'm translating that Greek word. We sometimes translate it discipline. But the, the, the focus of that isn't trying. The focus of that is training. So we're training ourselves in godliness. So that's what do you, the favorite word, process. It's that process. We learn that. And so we start to learn, and that becomes the new habit of our lives. I know it. I know what I need to do. I'm going to do it. I'm going to keep doing it. Because that's my new habit of righteousness. I'm training myself for godliness. Again, First Peter four seven, First uh, Timothy four seven. Excuse me. So this um, anyway. That's why this material in Joseph. It's not only about how Israel is getting down into Egypt and the nation will be born. That's what we'll see in Exodus and all of that. But it's also a tremendous character study of a man who is very very serious about God. And you, you see this great role model of how you deal with these things. Now, yes, Andrew. Oh, I just I, it popped in my head, and so I just wanted to share, if you don't mind. The, um, on this concept, I remember hearing an example of um, a father talking about his son um, playing baseball and, mm. and how batting practice and fielding practice just mm. day in, day out, day in, mm. day out, spend an hour, you know, an hour a day doing it for the purpose being that the muscle memory would be such that he could play the game without having to think so much so that when something happened in the game mm. that was unexpected, his mind was free. To Knew exactly what, yeah. That's and, a great um, analogy. Wow. That is a great analogy. That really is. Yep. Because that's what a habit is for good things. I mean, you know, obviously bad habits, but that's our goal is for Ephesians 2, 20, uh, 2 through 24. Our habit, our, our goal is to get the old habits out and get the new habits in. That's what Paul says. Put off the old, put on the new. So, yeah, I mean, that's just great. That's a great illustration. Uh, that really is. Um, and that is really, that, if I can flip again to First Timothy 4.17, that is really the thought behind that. You are training yourself in godliness. So that you, you just now will instinctively know how to respond because you've trained yourself in that way. That's a great analogy. You know, I don't play golf. Well, I, I have played golf. But believe me, if you enjoy the game of golf, you don't want to play golf with me because I'm not. But anyway, I know men that are very serious, and women too, for that matter, but men that are very serious about golf. I mean, it's hours and days and days and years and years to get it below 90, and then if you really are blessed by God to get it below 80, and then only supernatural people go lower than that. <clears throat> so it's just, it's the kind of, but it's training and training and training. And I just, you know, another analogy would be like the Olympics. 
some of those Olympic people, I just, I, you stand in all of some of them. But as you all know, in back of that are years and years of training their body for whatever it is they're doing. But even God can't hit a one-iron. Is that in the Bible somewhere? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now, verse 11, we reach the, the apex of, of this particular part. But one day when he, and of course that's Joseph, went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of that house were there in the house, verse 12, she caught him by his garment. She's never done anything like this before, so now she's taking a radical step, saying, lie with me. Now, um, one, interpreting this in what it would have looked like in ancient Egypt, um, Egypt is a very hot climate, very air, hot, arid climate, and so they would wear very loose-fitting clothing, possibly with an undergarment, but possibly when she catches him by his garment, he is virtually naked. So, I mean, I mean, you can understand what she's doing and why she's doing what she's doing. But now he is incredibly vulnerable now. And he, what does he do? But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. So what's the point of that? You do not see Joseph standing there thinking, hmm. What should I do about this? Hmm. I mean, just, you know, he's not standing there and thinking about it, whether he's even considering her obvious offer of seduction. No, he just runs. And it may be, this may be in the Apostle Paul's mind in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 when he says, flee immorality. Don't even think about it. Don't consider it. As fast as you can, run away from it. And again, I, that's not an original thought with me, that maybe Paul had that in mind when he gave that command, flee immorality. What was that chapter? Um, I, it's 1 Corinthians. I, I think it's chapter 5, uh, Woody. It might be chapter 6. Okay. It's one of those two. When he is <laughs> dealing with, with sexuality issues. Verse 13, and as he, soon as he saw that, as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of their household and said to them, now, I want you to notice the language she uses here, because obviously she's making a false accusation, but I want you to notice the language that she uses. See, he has brought among us, okay, now who's the he? The he is her husband, Potiphar. Has brought among us a Hebrew. So now, can I use 21st century nuances? She's playing the race card. He has brought into the household this Hebrew. And don't forget, even though Joseph has been elevated in Potiphar's house, he's still a slave. He has not been freed. He is still a slave. To laugh at us. And you could translate that word to mock us. 
Now, why is she saying that? Because she's setting up the situation that she will tell her husband, he tried to rape me. But he, so she's, she's loading this accusation with all kinds of, if I use the word incendiary, do you know what I mean? Incendiary language. That's just going to cause everybody to, with shock, and it'd be aghast. This Jew that Sarafar brought in, this slave, tried to rape the mistress of the house. So, I mean, she's just loading this with all kinds of accusatory language. He came in to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. True? No, that's a lie. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. Not true. And she laid up his garment by her until his master came home, and she told him the story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came to me and to laugh. You could again translate that, mock me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. So the false accusation is of rape. But yet she's wrapping it around all of those phrases that just create emotional anger. It's an outsider. It's a slave. It's a Jew. And mocking us. And she tried to put a little guilt on her husband for bringing him into the... Oh, not a little. Not a little. She wants him to feel it's all your fault. Isn't that amazing that the scriptures say in Genesis chapter 3 that the consequence of sin is we will rationalize and victimize. That's the nature of sin. You rationalize what you do and you make yourself a victim. Remember Adam? Adam said, when when confronted, the woman you gave me caused me to do this. And then when Eve, she, she doesn't accept blame. She says, the serpent made me do it. So, I mean, you know, that's, that's the nature of sin. Rationalize, and I'm a victim. It's somebody else's fault. So that's what she's doing. It's just the language is, is, is very clear. For, for, there's a, there's a, uh, yeah. 1 Corinthians 6, 18. Is that it? Okay. Yeah, okay, it's 6 then. It's chapter 6, it's verse 18. is where that flea immorality command comes from. Thank you. Okay, thank you. All right, now how does Potiphar respond to this, which, again, is um, so unfair and as soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me again. She's the victim. You're to blame, Potiphar. His anger was kindled. Joseph's master took him and put him into prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. What's the next verse say? But the Lord was with Joseph. So, men, how do we process this? Did God know that this was going to happen to Joseph? Yes. Did God permit this evil to happen to Joseph? Yes. For purposes, some of which we're going to find out in chapter 40, for purposes that are much more significant, much greater, that no one ever could have figured out This is how God is going to get Joseph to be the second most powerful man in Egypt. Because only the second most powerful man in Egypt 
could bring 70 more Jews into Egypt, which is what the whole point of this is about. God is the sovereign Lord of the universe. And he uses evil and all circumstances to affect his will. And his will is Joseph will become the second most powerful man in Egypt to bring Jacob's clan of 70 to Goshen in the Nile Delta. Because there's no other way that would have happened. So, I mean, it's just, again, intermixed with this enormously important character study of Joseph is the overarching theme of God's sovereignty and God's providence. The Lord is with Joseph. And please note the rest of that verse, and showed him his steadfast love. Now, we have read about that before in our study. I'm going to, this, you'll, I, if any of you remembers this, I'll give you a cup of coffee. I don't know. I don't know what I'll do it. What's the Hebrew word for that? Chesed. Remember the guttural chesed? H E S E D. In many ways, and I don't, I don't want to burden you with Hebrew words, but every now and then it's kind of fun to get that in your mind. That's probably next to the na- Hebrew names for God, Yahweh and Elohim and all that stuff. This is probably the most important Hebrew word in the Old Testament. Because it is used, I think it is used in every book of the Old Testament. It is the covenant, loyal love of God. Jim, applying this, uh, when when we as men do the right thing, uh, trusting in the Lord, but we're sent into a deep valley like he was, God is with us. Yes. That's his promise. Yes. And that whatever the outcome, our satisfaction is in the Lord, whether we end in the valley and die there, or whether we go to a higher peak like Joseph did later. Mm. But our personal satisfaction, would you say that God makes that sufficient to us to be, to be pleased with what we I, I, Ultimately, yes. There may be, as we're in that valley time, so where there's doubt and confusion and even anger and so on at the Lord. But yet, ultimately, he will take us through. Lo, you know, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age, Jesus says. He just says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Um, and, you know, in, in Psalm 23, even though I go through the valley of the shadow that you are with me, you know, and you will bless me, you know, that kind of language that the psalmist uses there. So, yes, I mean, Fred, you could substitute the Lord was with Fred. Is he with you? The Lord is with Woody and everyone around this table. And shows him your steadfast love, his loyal covenant love to you. So I mean th- that's why we can we can take we can take this important narrative of Joseph in chapter thirty nine, and leave out the specific circumstances. But you can put yourself there. You face things like this all the time. Maybe not the specific nature of this temptation, but you face these things all the time. So you have to make a decision, like Joseph. I will not sin against God, and I will have a strategy of how I'm going to deal with these things. And even if trumped up false lying charges are filed against me and I get in trouble, I'm still going to trust the Lord. That's the amazing thing about this guy. And, you know, it, it doesn't say, and Joseph called a pity party in the prison feeling sorry for himself. 
Now, he may have, I don't know, but it doesn't tell us he did that. Because Joseph is learning to trust and have confidence in the Lord. That this, what we read, the Lord is with Joseph, Joseph knew that. It isn't just a thought he occasionally had, he knew it, and it affected his behavior. Maybe I should say it another way. It affected his choices that he's making. Is there is there a possibility that he was gifted with a strong faith, and because of that, Satan come against him to try to tempt him? To, is oh, that, is that, is that, yeah, sure. Does that happen? Sure, sure. Find the Lord or... or sure. Or have a strong belief in the Lord that sure. he's come under attack from Satan. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Woody, I can just about guarantee, based on the authority of God's word, that Satan would just really like to see you and everybody around this table stumble and bring shame upon the name of the Lord. He would just love to see that happen. And there are multiple examples of that happening. Um, I was going to tell a story, but I'm not going to do that. So just again, I, I just that word that translates steadfast love, that's one word in the Hebrew. That's just one of those words you ought to just see if you can remember that. Chesed, guttural chesed. It's, it's, just, it's a very important biblical word because it's making a statement about, about who God is. He's a loyal trustworthy, covenant, loving God. He never gives up. That's what he's showing to Joseph. And gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. Okay, what does that mean? We're about to find out. So even in this Egyptian prison, God is at work. He's about to elevate Joseph in another situation of all places in a prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in prison. Whatever was done there, he was one who did it. Now, whatever that exactly means, this guy who's head of the prison delegates the authority to Joseph. He's just one of these men, you know, again, the Bible doesn't give us a lot of detail, but he's one of those men who's just a gifted leader. And he, you know, you can, you know, I've been in leadership a long time, and you can kind of tell potential or gifted leaders as you work with individuals. You can just kind of, they've got some of those important qualities. Joseph, I mean, it must have been so clear and discernible. And so the verse 23, it's almost the same kind of language as with Potiphar. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge. He was so effective and so trustworthy and so dependable that he's drinking Starbucks coffee all the time because Joseph's running everything. (laughs) Why? Because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. And uh, when when you read that, sometimes in America we think just a financial and material success it is part of it, but the, the important point is Joseph is honoring the Lord in everything he does, and the Lord is honoring him through everything he does. That God is receiving glory through what Joseph is doing. So, I mean, this he's just one of these remarkable individuals in the scriptures that it's important to pay attention 
again and again and again to chapters like this. He's a great role model of someone who, who models what I think a man of God should look like. Chapter 40, we have 10 more chapters to study in the book of Genesis. I can't believe that. So are you ready to start? Any questions about 90? Uh, 90, uh, about 39? All right, let's see what happens in this narrative now is, all right, what is going to happen to Joseph in prison? Sometime after this, the this referring to Joseph ending up in prison, the cupbearer of the king and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. Now, the text does not tell us what they did. So, I mean, I don't know what they did. You can speculate. Uh, when I was studying this a while back, there's about 17 different possibilities. So when you have that many and the Bible doesn't tell us, let's, let's not spend any, burn any brain cells in trying to figure out what they did. But it must have been so serious or potentially so life-threatening that Pharaoh throws them into the, into the, into the, the prison, the dungeon. Now, let's, um, let's make sure that we um, know who these people are and why they're important. The cupbearer, are you familiar enough with ancient Near Eastern world to know what that meant? That, yeah, I mean, the person who, before the king took a drink, he took a drink first. Why? Because if somebody's trying to assassinate the king, this guy would die. <laughs> I mean, he, if there's any poison in the drink, the cupbearer's going to get it first. So and you might remember, maybe you don't know this, in the another one of the Old Testament, Nehemiah. Nehemiah served Artaxerxes of Persia, and he was Artaxerxes' cupbearer. So, and what that means, just pragmatically, that means daily Nehemiah was with the king. Daily the cupbearer's with Pharaoh. And the baker, and it's just obviously that's what that means, he's cooking the bread of, for the Pharaoh. And bread was a staple part of the diet. So whatever these guys did, they were extremely close to Pharaoh. Now they're in prison. Verse 2, and Pharaoh was angry with these two officers, chief cupbearer and chief, and put them into custody of the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. I don't know what all your translations have because I'm reading from the ESV. You could translate that word confined, bound. Because some of the things we're going to read, it seems as if Joseph is, yes, Joseph has a position, but he is bound, meaning perhaps armed, we don't know, but it's a little more of a restrictive verb than just he's in prison. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in his custody. So here you have the image of a man like Joseph, kind of a model of patience, of obedience, doing what this head of the guards wants done, but also trusting in the Lord. Now, here is the, here's, we're now to the final point of the narrative. At one night, they both dreamed. Who? Well, the cupbearer and baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in prison. Each his own dream, and each dream his own interpret, needed his own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. Now, what does that mean? Well, I mean, you know, they're moping around, the countenance of their face, don't know exactly but the next point, so he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in master's house, why are your faces downcast today? Literally, why are your faces bad today? That's literally the Hebrew. 
you are evidencing something bad. What's going on? So they said, we've had dreams, and there's no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell me. Now, let me digress for just a minute, and this is not necessarily maybe is relevant, but I think it's important for us to understand. The ancient Near Eastern world, outside of the people of Israel, the ancient Near Eastern world was a world that believed the gods communicated through dreams and visions. And so every single court of every single civilization in the ancient world had wise, sage, soldier, uh, um, um, uh, they have lots of titles, wise people, wise men, counselors, astrologers who would interpret dreams. So if a king had a dream, his assumption was, the gods are trying to tell me something, you come in and interpret the dream for me. What are they telling me? As you move into ancient Greece, they, they had many cults. One of the most famous was the uh, the Delphi Oracle. And it was a place. They would go there and have all these dreams. Okay, tell us what this means. So when they say, we have no one to interpret them, they had been in the court of Pharaoh. And if they'd had a dream as a cupbearer, they'd go to the interpreter and say, okay, what does this dream mean? But in prison, there's nobody, there's nobody to do that for them. So that's what's in back. Do you understand what I'm saying? They are, used to, they are used to somebody telling what this dream means, but they're in prison. Nobody can tell them. So that's why they're all morose and downtrodden. Their lips are hanging down, dragging on the floor of the prison. I'm making that up. I'm just trying to. Because Joseph really noticed this. And notice how Joseph responds. Did you see that? Do not interpretations belong to God? And remember back... In the promised land, remember, Joseph had a dream, and it was about his brothers. Remember all that? Because, and then he interpreted the dream, and he did interpret the dream correctly, but his brothers weren't wild about what the dream. Remember all that? But Joseph is saying the correct thing. Only God can interpret dreams. Tell me what your dream was. So the chief cupbearer, told his dream to Joseph and said, now the whole thing is rehearsed here. In my dream, there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth. Clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand. Remember, he's a cupbearer. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand. I took the grapes, pressed them into Pharaoh's cup, placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, this is interpretation. Three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head, restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly, saying, you are the cupbearer. Verse 14. So the, the dream is simple. You're going to be restored to Pharaoh as a cupbearer. That's great news. So what does Joseph say? Remember me. When you're restored, remember me. When it is well with you, please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh to get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here I have done nothing that they should put me into this pit. Second dream. When the chief baker saw the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. 
There were three cake baskets in my head. The uppermost basket were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating it out of the basket of my head. Joseph answered, said, this is interpretation. Three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree. And the birds shall come and eat the flesh from you. It could mean, uh, that's uh, that there's a little bit of, of, of uh, lack of clarity, but lift up your head. It may mean he's going to cut his head off, decapitate him. I'm not sure about that. But the point is, he's going to be executed. So they're two diametrically opposed dreams. One guy's going to be restored. The other guy's going to be executed by Pharaoh. So, as you leave the interpretation of the two dreams... What's hanging there? What, what is the most important thing you remember? He said to the cupbearer, when you are restored, remember me. So let's see what happens. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, I mean, it could literally be his birthday or it could be, a. there's a lot of possibilities, the day in which he had become the king. So whatever, it's a very special day. He made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position, placed a cup in the Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted him. What's verse 23 said? Yet the cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Now, if you're preaching this message or teaching this message in a chapter in a Sunday school class, how would you end this? The cupbearer did not remember Joseph but forgot him. But what would you add? God did not not forget Joseph. That's how we should end this chapter. The cupbearer forgot him, but God didn't. Because what's the theme of these chapters? The Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. So the Lord didn't forget Joseph. So no matter how low things get in your life, remember, everyone else may forget me, but the Lord doesn't. We've covered two chapters today. Is, is there something wrong with this class? <laughs> yeah, okay, there you go. Well, let's look at chapter 41 and get, get started. I don't think we'll finish, but we'll get close. After two whole years. Now, how should we interpret that temporal marker in Scripture? Cupbear forgets Joseph. It's two more years. He's in prison. Goodness. Why does God delay? Why did why is God letting Joseph go through this another two years? Any thoughts? What 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 is it that is aging? His faith. Time, and this is, it it doesn't always work this way because of just who we are. But time is a a way in which God, I'm trying to think of how I want to say this, 
Time is a way in which God matures and builds our faith. We'd studied this a long time ago. Well, by a long time ago, I mean months ago. Do you remember Abram? Abram's given a promise that um, he's 75 years old, that of you, Abram, I will make a nation as great as the stand of the shore and the stars of the sky. And when God made that promise to him, the first time he made that promise to him, did Abram have any children? No. How old's his wife? She's 65. <clears throat> How long did Abram have to wait till Isaac was born? 25 more years. God makes the promise at 75. Isaac's born when Abram's 100. He has to wait 75 to, uh, 25 more years. And you think, you know, why? Why did, God, why did God do that? He makes this promise, gets him all excited about this potential possibility and all the major ways in which God affirms it. And it's just keep 24 years, 25 years, year after year. Will it be this year? December the 31st comes. No, it's not going to be this year. January 1st. Will it be this year? And he goes through that 25 times. What, and we studied that from chapter 12 until you get to chapter 24. What is happening to Abram's faith? It's growing, it's deepening, it's maturing. Is God doing the same thing in your life? Well, I'd like to ask you a question. Oh, sure. I mean, the narrative of Scripture is all of these macro, big objectives and things you know, as God's moving his big plan for mm-hmm. for the world forward. Yeah. And all of the characters that we see playing in this are big characters. They're the Josephs and the Abrahams and right. people of that nature. So, I mean, I, I think I would be encouraged if somewhere in Scripture there was just somebody like me. <laughs> the story was told. You know, but, but are we to interpret or to understand that while God's working on big things with big people, that the same thing's happening down here where Fred and Woody, Tom, Fred, and myself live and work? And I mean, do these principles apply directly to us as well? And I, I think I know the answer, but I, I'd well, like of to hear course. what you say about that. <laughs> The an- the answer to that has to be uh, has to be yes, uh, Jim. It really does. And I, let me answer it from this vantage point. Um, you you are absolutely correct, and I loved how you put it. These these individuals like Abram and Joseph and all that, they're involved in the really big macro things that God's doing. But don't forget. God's primary purpose is a redemptive purpose, wherever you are. And that redemptive purpose means it's focused on individual people. And Jim, all that God has, as I've known you for a while, all that God has done in your life, in in all the multiple ways through the tragic uh, death of your, your wife to cancer and all the things that have happened and so on, yet through and in that, as you have remained faithful to the Lord, you have no idea how God has used that in terms of impacting other people, both in what you have said, because I've heard your testimony and so on, and, and how people have observed how you lived your life. God changes people one person at a time. And how does he change people one person at a time? Through the power of his spirit working through other human beings. 
So at the micro level, every single one of us around this table, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are part of his plan. And he is using you. Yes, in the big macro, because the macro is everything coming together, but at the micro level, because Christ comes to people one person at a time, and they have to make the decision. And they tell us, I don't know how they arrive at this, but someone has to hear the gospel clearly explained to them seven times before they respond. So you and I are a part of what God is doing in that. So absolutely, yes. And every aspect of your life is a part of God maturing you, growing you to be part of what he's doing in your world. And your world is part of the big world. <laughs> but I mean, we have, to, we have to look at it that way. We do. We absolutely have to look at it that way. Because God's, especially as you move into the New Testament, you get more and more of this stress and focus on the individual person. Jesus says in John chapter 10, I know all my sheep, I know them by name. Which individualizes everything God's doing. Lord, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. I will never leave you, nor will I ever forsake you. So, I mean, that's just, we are, in, we are um, how do I want to say that? We are encouraged to individualize those promises and commitments of our covenant-making, covenant-keeping God to each and every one of us around this table. That's how important we are to him. I told you this before. That When my wife, that was one of those incredible things in her life years and years ago, when she was reading that in John chapter 10, the shepherd knows my name. You know, that, I mean, of the billions of people, the shepherd knows my name. He knows me. He knows all about me, and he cares for me. And I'm a part of his plan. So the answer to that is absolutely yes. You know, I meet with, you know, and I met her in a relationship with two younger guys. Mm, good, good, years. wonderful. I mean, and they're not... I mean, they're not big players in the sense that they're going to be executives or anything like that. One of them repairs computer systems inside hospitals. Mm. And another one does home remodeling. You know, I, mean, I try to encourage them every morning that that they they have unique opportunities that none of us will ever have. Great, else will great ever way to put it. Those opportunities. It's a great way to, to put touch it. Touch somebody's yeah. life mm -hmm. or. Mm -hmm. They've got attributes that nobody else has right. that God can marshal in a way that can use in his life. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. So, yeah, it's just, I mean, it's, I mean I, I'd love to see stories of nobody's in here. <laughs> <laughs> but they're all macro characters yeah. around whom. But you know, Jim, in some way, when you read about the Gospels uh, of Jesus and you read the disciples he chose, in the context of first century Galilean or Judean culture, they were nobodies. That's right. They really were. They weren't, they weren't the exalted, elevated Josephs of the first century, because Joseph was in the centers of power. Well, you know, if, I, if I were, were going to choose a bunch of people, I'm not sure I'd look at a bunch of fishermen in the North Shore of the Sea of Galilee as the people I would really want to train, you know, or a tax collector. Can you imagine an IRS official hiring them and saying, they're going to be the person going to change the world? Everybody hates the IRA. What do you mean? You're telling me you're attacked? Yeah, I don't want to listen to you. But Levi, also called Matthew, becomes one of those. So in many ways, Jim, they are really nobodies in, in that context. And what God did with them, they changed the first century world. 
They really did. I think of the blind man that he healed. Another one. And his testimony mm-hmm. that went back to the leaders. Exactly. He yeah. says, well, I can't explain this, but this is what how he changed me. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, everybody that he healed basically was... An ambassador of what yeah, he was doing. Yeah. Your testimony that went out. Exactly. Mary yeah. Magdalene, she wasn't a high status. <clears throat> mm-hmm. Yeah. Just, there are lots and lots and lots of those folks. That's why when you get into the New Testament, uh, both in the Gospels and some of the teaching parts of the New Testament, it is much more individualized, where it's not just the really big power shakers of the world, but it is people that are touched by Christ and change things. Um, my daughter is, I think I told you that, uh, she's in education, reading coordinator now and so on. We, we were with them last night. She's just, it's hard. It's hard with some of these kids because they're coming to such dysfunctional situation. And she said, Dad, I just, I hardly see any difference I make in their lives. She's trying to help them to read. I mean, that's, you know, she gets the kids who don't read well and all that. And, you know, I'm her dad, so I'm going to do everything I can. But I said, Joanna, only eternity will truly tell the impact you're making on these kids. Because change and transformation of child's life, and I'm not only talking just about spiritual things, but to teach somebody to read and to read is really a great skill for them. And then Joanna does it through the good as a Christian. She, She really does some neat things with these kids. But I'm saying all that because... She just needs to be reminded you are a change agent, even if you don't see it in the immediate context of nine months with these kids. Because Isn't that right? You have to say that. And that's true with everything that we do. The Lord will use what we do if, if it's done in his name. And just like these two men that you're, you're, you're mentoring and so on, that's, that's, that's true in every one of these situations. Well, maybe we will stop. Uh, I want to pick up right away with verse 1 again of chapter 41 and and look at um, the next series of dreams and so on and what happens. Because this really now is kind of the apex of of Joseph's career where he will become the second most powerful man in Egypt. And so it's it's a miraculous demonstration of God's sovereignty as well. Lord, we're thankful for uh, this... uh, important two chapters we've studied uh, today about Joseph, and um, I've always used him um, with uh, teaching and with other men and so on as kind of a model of someone who had a clear understanding of you, a love for you, but had a strategy for holiness in his life. He He knew himself, he knew his limitations, and he knew that he could not even consider for a second the seductive lurings of this woman. Uh, he had made his mind up beforehand what he was going to do. And rather than think about it, he ran. And he was clear in the strategy. He, w- he would not even be in the same room with her. So, Lord, help us to be men like that. We know our limitations. We know who we are. And we know the kind of strategy that we need to develop, a new habit, pattern of, of, of how we're going to live. So I just pray that in my own life and for these men to help us to see things in that way. And the other amazing thing about Joseph, yes, Lord, you were with him. You keep saying that over and over again, providentially superintending and guiding. But Lord Joseph was with you. His commitment to you was deep. You were growing his faith. You were maturing his capacity to trust you. And Lord, I believe you're doing that in each one of our lives too. 
You're growing our faith. You're growing uh, our understanding of who you are and your trustworthiness. Your chesed that you showed to Joseph, you show to us too. So may be faithful representative of you today. So now we go our separate ways. Bless us, use us, Lord, in a mighty, powerful way that only you can can to represent you well in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. See you next week.